Please join me in Psalm 139. We'll read that portion together in just a moment. And as you're finding the place, today is the first of two sermons on the theme of vulnerability. We'll unpack that word hopefully as we move along. But today is the vertical focus. You being open and honest, transparent, vulnerable before God. And Lord willing, next Sunday is the horizontal focus. Vulnerability with one another. This little two-part look was prompted by two primary reasons. And the first is that, I think uh, I'll just speak personally, one of my dangers as I look back on my walk with Jesus over the last 23 years, which was when the Lord brought me to Himself when I was a freshman in college. One of my dangers is a temptation to try to get my theology squared away, to read my Bible every day, but my heart be a thousand miles from Jesus. And so we wanted, for the first motivation, to go vertical today and talk about vulnerability before God because like Isaiah quoted Jesus, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 15, uh, Jesus quoted Isaiah, Gospel of Matthew chapter 15. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So the first and biggest motive is that we wanted to, if you will, take a sermon like a syringe, inject it into the body of this little local church to tenderize our hearts, to be lovingly honest in our vulnerability before God. The negative would say, we don't want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceitful that we can think all the right things, say all the right things, and as I said, be a thousand miles away from Jesus in our heart. That's the first reason. The second is, we also next week, Lord willing, want to inject a sermon about this horizontal vulnerability because we have just begun, as was prayed a moment ago, a new cycle of small groups among the membership of our local church. And we're weird. We're from the moon. We know that. And one of our weirdnesses, among many others, is that our small group ministry is restricted only to our covenant members. There's various reasons for that, both theological, convictional, biblical, and there's some practical reasons for that. But one of the practical reasons is I want to know when I'm sitting across the living room from another person that that person is with me. <laughs> and I can be honest with them and know that it's a safe space. So my prayer is that as we begin a new cycle of small groups, that each of us would, because of these sermons in, in some small part, would be honest and transparent in our confiding in each other for the purpose of receiving strategic spiritual help and support and prayer. So vulnerability with God today. Psalm 139. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Tune your ear to the voice of God. O oh Lord, You have searched me and known me. 
You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid Your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from Your Spirit? Where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, You are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, Your hand will lead me and Your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to You and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to You. For You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to You for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are Your works. And my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from You when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in Your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are Your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with You. Verse 19, Oh, that You would slay the wicked, O God! Depart from Me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against You wickedly. And Your enemies take Your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Would you join your hearts with me? Again, once more before the throne of grace as we ask for God's help in considering this psalm. Would you just silently pray a real prayer right now for God to speak to you? I'll give you just a moment for that. Oh, Father, Captivate us now with Your own glory in the face of Your Son. Father, consume us with Your Gospel love. Arrest us with Your presence, O God. In Jesus' name, Amen. Because we're just jumping into the Psalms for today, before we dig into this particular Psalm, let's just get the lay of the land of the entire book of Psalms. None of them are haphazardly just thrown in. There's 150 of them. It's obviously a very big book, but there are actually five books within the one book. And each of the five books have a primary theme and focus. And the theme of the whole, including the parts, is the praise of God. Book 1 is Psalm 1 through, verse, uh, through Psalm 41. 
And the point of that book is really stated in the doxology in the very last verse of that book, book 1, ending with Psalm 41, verse 13. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. Book 2, by no coincidence, ends with another doxology. Psalm 42 through 72, the last verses of which say, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, and blessed be His glorious name forever, and may the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. Do you see a pattern? Book 3, Psalm 73 through 89, ends with these words, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and Amen. Do you see a pattern? Psalm 90 through Psalm 106 is book 4, ending with this phrase, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the peoples say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And then our Psalm 139 falls in the fifth book of the book of Psalm. Psalm 107 to the end, Psalm 150, which ends with the doxology of the entire book of the Psalms. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So the theme of the Psalms, though they definitely include a multitude of sub-themes, even within each section, the dominant theme is the just desert of God. What does He deserve from you? Let's be clear. We're not doing God any favors by being here. We're not benefiting God one iota. We're not adding anything to His immense and wonderful deity. He's not benefited by us. The writer of the book of Acts, Dr. Luke, said he's not served by human hands as though he needed anything. When the Lord Jesus came to earth, he didn't need our help. He didn't ask us if we even wanted him to come. He came out of his own benevolent love and flowing from his father's eternal purpose to redeem a people all by himself and all for himself. And he said, by his own lips, the Lord Jesus, I did not come to be served. So the Psalms are not saying, give God something that if you don't, He otherwise won't possess. He's saying He deserves your praise. It's wrong for you not to worship Him. Not only is it wrong for you not to praise Him, to withhold from Him what He deserves, it's actually to your Eternal advantage if you would bow your life in worshiping submission before Him. That's what really what our psalm is also about. The superscript above our psalm, those little words above verse 1 in Psalm 139, for the choir director, a psalm of David. Meaning this is to be sung as a response of praise to the character and love of our God. So before we even go into the verses, this is for the choir director. This is for the people of God to praise the name of God. So as we enter into this psalm, may I give you just a word of application and encouragement right at the beginning. I'll give you the invitation now. Be cautious of disconnecting your heart from God as you hear these wonderful truths about Him. God didn't write you a systematic theology book. This is true, that is true, this is true, that is true. A plus B equals C. He didn't write to you that way. He gave us a love letter so that our hearts would respond to Him appropriately for the choir director. A song of praise. 
This was written that we would praise God for who He is and gladly step into His searching light. Gladly step into His searching light to have our inward motives tried before Him and to have our entire lives flooded with the light of His presence. The ESV Study Bible says the theme of this Psalm 139 is, quote, God's intimate knowledge of His people. We may think that we can slip into the shadows and sin and then just kind of spin back into the light where God then sees us, but the all-seeing eye of God cannot but not see us. He sees us always. The good news is who God is. One of His many names in the Old Testament Hebrew is El-Ro-E, the God who sees. It's not simply what He does. He does see you. It's really who He is. His nature demands that your whole life is always before him. So we'll take the psalm in four parts because it breaks down, I think, that way. Verses 1 to 12, which has two parts. Verses 13 to 18, which is another part. And then finally, verses 19 to the end. All beneath the theme of vulnerability before God. Number one, verses 1 to 12. Vulnerability with God begins. By considering God's character. Verses 1 to 6 show us part of his character. Verses 7 to 12 show us another aspect of his character. So, vulnerability with God begins by considering God's character. That is, verses 1 to 6, his knowledge of me. And verses 7 to 12, his presence with me. Verses 1 to 6, let's take that beneath our first heading. And I would put it under this subheading, all that may be known about me is known by God because God is omniscient. One of the three big omnis about God. You know these words. You've heard them before. I trust. His omniscience is His all-knowingness. His omnipresence is His ever-presentness. And His omnipotence is His all-powerfulness. We're not talking about His presence and power. We're talking about His knowledge. In verses 1 to 6. Again, the ESV Study Bible summarizes well by saying this portion of this psalm develops the general assertion quote, God knows all of my activities, all of my words, even my inmost thoughts. Let's take a look at it together. Beneath the heading, vulnerability with God begins by considering his knowledge of you. I'm not asking you today. What do you know about Him? This psalm is asking us, do you know what He knows about you? All that may be known about me, our subpoint, is known about me by God because God is omniscient. Verse 1 is a past tense. Oh Lord, You have searched me and have known me. Once the psalmist steps into the light of the character of God who is omniscient, you don't make Him God. You become aware of who He is as He woos you into His presence by grace through Christ. And here the psalmist begins, you have searched me. And as he steps into the light of the presence of God, he ends the psalm in verse 23, please search me. The happy place of living beneath the light of God. You see, God is qualitatively different 
from us. He has already searched you. You didn't come here today to invite God to do something for you. He woke you up this morning, and though you may have made a plan or two to get here and a preparation or two to prepare yourself to be here, God is the one who from eternity past ordained that you would be here now. He exists in the eternal now. All things, the writer of Hebrews says, before the Logos and Word of God, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of God with whom we must give an account. There is nothing to know about you that is not already known by God. Before you thought about asking Him to search your heart, verse 23, He already did it, verse 1. You are right now filleted wide open before the eyes of El Roi, the God who sees. Hebrews adds that underneath His searching Word, God also judges your thoughts, even your motives, the intentions of your heart, and that's verses 2 and 3, which speak to God's acquaintedness with our physical frame, our posture, our thoughts, our geographical whereabouts. He knows in verse 2 whether you're sitting or whether I'm standing. He knew that last night in verse 3, most of us, I trust, were lying down. In verse 2, He knows what you're thinking. Verse 3, where you're traveling. Verse 3 sums it up with the all. He's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. Verse 4 expresses that God fully knows our words even before we speak them. Before there's a word on my tongue, O oh Lord, You know it. So my question in application is already this. Have you found the peaceful place of resting your soul by faith before the all-seeing eye of God. He sees us all. He knows us all. But the peaceful place is what I'm asking you about. The still waters. The green pastures. Of bringing your life gladly into the light before the all-seeing eye of God. Verse 4 is really the summary of God's knowledge. You know it all. So verses 1-6 to could focus really on the all, and verses 7-12 to focuses on the nothing. We'll get there in just a moment, but when I say all that may be known about me, our sub-point, is known by God, this is actually to be a source of great comfort for us, as well as a catalyst for us to praise Him. That's what happens in verses 5-6. and six. Comfort and catalyst to praise. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. He is just enraptured into praise. Do you see what has happened to this man's heart? He went from God's character to extolling God in worship. Wonderful. Transcendent. High beyond me. I can't grasp the edges, O oh God. I cannot attain to it. Instead of feeling claustrophobic because God knows everything and is everywhere, verse 5, He's behind me and He's before me, which harkens back to the Exodus when the people of Israel were saved from Egypt and God was mowing down the, the, the Red Sea in front of them and splitting it apart like a piece of paper. He also became their rear guard, the text says, and prevented Egypt from encroaching upon them. And Psalm 37 says, the angel of the Lord, picture this, encamps around those who fear Him. Behind me, before me. Instead of being claustrophobic, David feels wonder 
He's swallowed up in the beautiful immensity of God. God is bigger and broader and further and higher and deeper and stretching beyond anything He's ever thought before this moment. He's too high. He's too big. I can't attain to it. When our preoccupation with God swallows us whole. When the wonderful immensity of the unlimited God in His person and His intimacy with our little life and our ways descends upon our conscience, we're moved to Godward worship. We're engulfed in God-centered praise. We are, as Clyde Cranford defined worship, we're preoccupied with God. He becomes everything. Good news, God knows the real you. That's verses 1-6. to All that can be known about you is known by God. But the second part of the first 12 verses is the nothing. Verse 1 to 6, all that can be known is known because God is omniscient. Verses 7 to 12, the second part of our first point, nothing can be hidden from God because there is no place that God is not. This is a focus on God's omnipresence, that all of God is everywhere all the time. Verses 1 to 6, he's omniscient. Verses 7 to 12, he's omnipresent. So beneath our first point, vulnerability be- God begins by considering His character, His knowledge, and His presence. Let's emphasize here what the psalmist emphasizes. The nothing. The nowhere. There's nothing God doesn't know because there's nowhere that God is not. All that may be known about me is known by God, 1-6, to because nothing can be hidden from God because there's no place He is not present look at verse 7 where can i go from your spirit where can i flee from your presence if i ascend to heaven you're there if i make my bed in sheol behold you're there if i take the wings of the dawn dwell in the remotest part of the sea even there your right your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me what a beautiful portrait of the true god for the believer the thorough inescapability of god His immensity. And while it's a beautiful portrait for the believer, let it not be lost on us how horrible a picture it is for the unbeliever. There is nowhere you can hide from Him. Up until this moment, though many of us have lived largely in ignorance of the reality, you have lived your entire life right in front of the face of Jesus of Nazareth. He sees it all. He knows it all. Comfort to the believer. Terror to those who are still in their sins. I love the sweet comfort of the Hebrew word right at the beginning of verse 10. The Hebrew word is like, even there. That's the way the NASB translates it. Even there. Right there. In that spot. Your hand will lead me. It's a catch-all word in the Hebrew. When I'm in that far off spot, when I'm in that hard spot, when I'm in that, he says, remote part of the sea. You ever seen those movies or read those books about the castaways in sea? Lost out at sea somewhere? The psalmist is saying, there's not a thimble full of water in the ocean where God is not. There, 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 even there. Where nobody can find me, I'm off the radars, 
There is no technology that man has ever created that can find the pieces of the boat if it's dismantled in the storm, but God is there. I can imagine the Lord Jesus during the days of His incarnation as a small boy and an emerging young man. Maybe even during His last three and a half years of public ministry, meditating time and time again on this psalm. I can almost picture Him in my mind's eye at Joseph and Mary's house thinking about what the synagogue priest had said the Sabbath beforehand about this psalm. And Jesus is meditating and musing on this psalm. And then in His public life and ministry, He says to His followers things that make us think either you have totally lost your mind or you have to be the Messiah. Because Jesus would say things like psalm, uh, pardon me, John chapter 8, the Father is always with me. He has never left me alone. For I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. God's omnipresence. The word Sheol in verse 8 can be translated the grave, the nether regions. Sometimes it is undoubtedly a reference to hell. In this passage, most agree that it is not. It's the place of the dead. It's when you go down to the grave. The psalmist is saying basically through this word, even if I go to Sheol, you're there. He's saying there's literally nowhere in the universe that I can go to escape your presence. And I love that truth. I want to live before you. Speaking of hell, Bible-rooted people constantly have our theology fixed by reading the Bible, or as we like to say around here, the best way to mess up what you think about God is to read the Bible. I'd heard my whole life that there's one place God is not. He is, in, he is not in hell. Hell is the everlasting absence of God, and I just don't believe it. And I think this psalm is, in a way, speaking to it. Far from being the everlasting absence of God, which any unbeliever would actually prefer, hell is the everlasting presence of every one of God's unfavorable attributes. Revelation 14.10 says that those who are today, the millions, doubtless billions, perhaps trillions, who are suffering today under God's just judgment and the ocean of Humanity that is yet to plunge into that abyss of eternal wrath are, according to Revelation 14.10, right now suffering under the wrath of the Lamb. Or as Paul wrote in Thessalonians to that fearful church, he said, when Jesus returns, you can be sure of this, Unbelievers will, quote, pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Here it comes. Away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of His power. But the word presence, as we've talked about before here, and I won't labor the point, is the Greek word prosopon, which is face. Away from the face of the Lord is the literal translation. And the glory of His face. It's not His presence. It's His face. And the anthropomorphisms of the Bible where you attribute human-like characteristics to God because God accommodates us and talks about His hand and His face and His back and His arm. Those are anthropomorphisms, human-like characteristics attributed to God. He doesn't have feet or a back or a face. He uses that language to accommodate us so we can understand. And in all those anthropomorphisms, God's face is His presence. God's back is His judgment. 
And first, uh, second Thessalonians one says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the face of the Lord. It's not that they're going to escape God. Oh, that they wish they could. They will escape his face and only have his back, which is what the son of God experienced on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Why am I getting your back? When all I've done, John 8, 29, is whatever pleases you. He got forsaken by the Father and experienced the back and wrath of the Father in six hours of time, suspended between heaven and earth on a cross outside of Jerusalem so that you would never be forsaken. So before we rush on to the next portion of this psalm, number two and beyond, let your eyes fall again concerning God's presence on verse 11. Oh, what a sweet, sweet revelation. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. David's basking. He's taking a bath beneath the waterfall of the Lord's luminance. God is light. And he loves it. He loves Him. Of the three God is statements in the Bible, I trust you know this lineup and have meditated long on it. God is love. God is spirit. God is light. Those are the three God is statements. Only light is repeated by Jesus as one of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. We know that God is light. 1 John 1.5 God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. And we know from John 8, the I am's, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. David is affirming that there's no darkness in God. This is essential to his character. It's not something that you have to make him do. It's simply who he is. He can't be other than brilliance and radiance and glory and all is light and all is bright in the presence of God. Though we often live in verse 11, don't we? Overwhelming darkness. The light of our best days. It seems like a house of cards, doesn't it? Some circumstance comes and blows on what looks like a little house of cards and it all seems to fall and gives way to the night of terrors and heartbreak and sorrow and suffering, confusion and loss. And I could go on. We often live in verse 11, but God lives in the eternal day when the Lord Jesus came to earth. Matthew, leaning back into the Old Testament to write his entire Gospel, the King has come. That's Matthew's point. The King of the Kingdom is here. He quotes Isaiah 9-2, that kingly messianic prophecy which says in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 4, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. You know what David's doing? Psalm 139, 11 and 12. He's loving the Holy Spirit taking the lantern of the beautiful light of Jesus and searching out 
in all of his exploratory joy, every deep recess and cavern of David's heart. Go spelunking, Holy Spirit. Come down into the recesses and caves of my heart that have felt dark for a long time and let your searching light come. Isn't that what every believer loves? As I said last Sunday, if you don't have a concern for the lost, I'm not sure what you mean when you call yourself a Christian. I'm not saying we perfectly evangelize the lost, but we certainly are burdened for their eternal welfare. And Jesus has commanded us to be and to pray that the Lord would send out workers. But similarly, if you don't love the light of Christ, I would say even deeper than last week's concern, if you don't love the light, I would say, not only am I concerned about your spiritual condition, I would say there is a gigantic question mark hanging over your spiritual condition. Listen to Jesus. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Do you want to know how you can trust God to lead you through your darkest moments of life? Whether it be owing to your own sin, or just living in a sinful world, or the sins of others against you, whatever angle from which your darkness comes, do you want to know how you can trust God to lead you through that darkness? Because there was only one moment. And that moment lasted for three hours when the light of the world endured eternal darkness. Jesus has never known anything except the Father's pleasure. From eternity, the Scriptures tell us, the book of Proverbs among other places, that the Son is the delight of the Father. His eternal Joy and happiness. The apple of His eye, according to the book of Psalms. The radiance of His glory and express representation of His nature, the book of Hebrews. The image of the invisible God, Colossians. We could go on. The Son has known nothing but the Father's pleasure from all eternity except for three hours. During the six hours that He was hanging on the cross for the redemption of our wretched souls, three of those hours were in total darkness. We're told that the noonday sun gave way to something like an eclipse, only worse. Total darkness over the face of the entire earth. And Jesus in that moment, enduring the darkness to guarantee you the light of His presence forever if you would but trust Him. How do you know you can trust Him in your darkness? Because He climbed into a darker pit than you or I will ever experience. He was consumed by that darkness like Jonah in that fish's belly. He was sunk down beneath the terror of the righteous anger of God. And for those three hours, He took in a temporal moment in His eternal person an infinite outpouring of God's judgment so that you and I would never, ever have to face the darkness alone. Jesus endured forsakenness by God the Father. And He did it for this reason, according to the Apostle Paul, so that God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, 
is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Number one, vulnerability begins by considering the character of God. His omniscience and His omnipresence. Number two, vulnerability with God deepens with the awareness that God made me, ordained my life, and loves me. I love verses 13 to 18. They've been so precious to me for so many years. Speaking of God's creative genius in forming our inward parts and weaving us in our mother's womb and speaking in verse 16 of ordaining our days when as yet there was not one of them and 17, how precious God's thoughts are to us. I want to say again, our point is this, vulnerability with God deepens. It should get sweeter over time. The more aware we become of God's creativity, He made me. His sovereignty, He ordained my life. His providence and His affection. He loves me. Let's just look briefly at this. Verses 13, 14, 15 would tell us very clearly that your personhood, including your physical stature, your DNA, the fabric of your being, every, all the intangibles that are you, your personality disposition, and all of that are part of God's wonderful handiwork. So I know we live in a weird day and in a weird culture where people think less or more of us based on some kind of physical presentation, but the, body, uh, the Bible knows no category of body shaming or anything like that. Verse 13 to 16 is a biblical anthropology. And it's a song, it's a chorus that sings over your life, you are precisely who God intended you to be. He made you. There's no mistake in God's wise design. And the psalmist responds to this truth of God's endless creativity in the making of every person by praising His providence. Verse 16, all my days were ordained when as yet there was not one of them. You see, what he's doing in the previous passage, ending with light and darkness, and there's no darkness to God, everything is as bright as the day to God, what he's saying is even in the dark place of my mother's womb, when I was just a little cellular embryo, in that dark spot, and I was very tiny, you could see me there. So, the logic goes from lesser to greater. If God can see you when you're just a small little smattering of cells that have just been fertilized inside your mother's womb, and you're that tiny in that dark place, then surely He can see everything about you when you're on this side of the womb and you're much bigger and easily spottable. He sees you. But it's not just that He sees you. He actually ordained your steps. Do you want to know something that is absurd sometimes it's hard for us to snap back into reality because we're so used to stuff here's something absurd that you're here today it's so absurd you didn't decide when you would be born where you would be born where you would live probably you may have made a decision or two and made a few arrangements but think about the billions of other factors that went into that decision you had nothing to do with it is absurd that you're here today, and I mean it especially in this way. What of the billions of people alive today, approximately two billion, who've never heard the name of Jesus? They've never seen a Bible, read a Bible. They don't know about the first coming of Jesus. They certainly don't know about His second coming. They haven't heard the glorious Gospel. Why aren't you one of them? 
Why are you here? Instead of frowning at God's providence and laying blame at His doorstep, and why didn't you do it this way or that way, or why me, oh God, let's just humble ourselves for a moment at the feet of our Maker and say thank you that I'm among the most blessed creatures ever to grace this planet, to be beneath the hearing of Your truth and Your Gospel love, the work of Your Son. Your days are ordained and it does mean very much that. Your expiration date is already set. It will happen at that moment on that day. I believe Hebrews 9 teaches that very, very clearly. But look where the psalmist ends in this section. How? I love this. Verse 17, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. This is the territory of sweet intimacy with our Maker. This is the vulnerability that I'm talking about. I'm talking about verse 18 coming from you not as a theology lesson, but as a song of praise. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. Instead of counting sheep as you drift off to sleep, Join the old King David somewhere on the run in this psalm who was once a little shepherd boy. Now he's sitting somewhere as a wrinkled old man and he's rubbing the grains of sand in between his fingertips. And every time a little cluster of sand falls from his fingers and he watches it drop to the ground, he's reviewing God's revelation concerning his children. This word precious in verse 17 has a lexical range. It can be translated these ways. To esteem and be prized, to be valuable, to be costly, to be appraised, to be precious in this sense in the Hebrew is to be highly valued, to be appraised with a cost beyond appraising, to make something precious. When God thinks of me, David is sitting there as the sand is dripping from his fingertips, and he's saying, Not when I think of you, but I believe most commentators get it right who say it means when God thinks of me. This is what he thinks. I'm just giving you a little sampling. David, you're justified. David, you're regenerated. You're spirit-filled. You're washed clean now. You're united to my Son. You're righteous in my sight. You've been exculpated from all your crimes. You're exonerated from all your guilt in front of me. You're acquitted of your treason. You're now welcome at my table. You're a joint heir with Jesus the Lord. You're a future ruler alongside all the saints in light. You think you're a king today, David? You haven't seen anything yet. You're an inheritor. You are an inheritor of every blessing in the heavenly places in my Son. You're a glory of Christ repository. You're a trophy of my grace. You're an adopted son in my forever family. And we could just go on. And David's sitting there thinking. And as he counts the precious thoughts of God toward him, he drifts off into sleep. And I see that in verse 18 at the end. When I awake, I'm still with you. I take that to mean that David drifted off into sleep trying to count God's precious thoughts toward him, outnumbering the sand that's by the seashore. And when he wakes up in the morning, he realizes, oh, my God, he never went to sleep. He's been counting the entire night. He's been listing out precious thoughts for me in his own great heart. His loving kindness toward me the entire night. When I woke up, you're still going. Oh, God. Behold, Psalm 121. 
He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You're so unlike God. You've spent a third of your earthly existence unconscious, asleep, sound asleep, in all that time, child of God, those who've taken refuge in Jesus, all that one-third of your earthly existence. Verse 17 is happening to you. Precious thoughts from God Almighty toward you. You can be vulnerable before Him. So in this portion of the psalm, God's thoughts toward you are not only owing to His omniscience, verses 1-6, to not only owing to the fact that He's omnipresent, verses 7-12, to these are specific to the believer. He sees you as His own dear child. He loves you. And He's wooing you even right now to adore Him. It's one of the quadrants of self-knowledge. There are four of them. One quadrant is stuff that you know and you alone know it about you. It could be good or bad. There's stuff that everybody knows about you. Hair color, height, so forth. There's stuff that you and God know and nobody else knows. Again, that could be good or bad. Secrets with God in Matthew 6 are a very good thing. But then there's another quadrant. Only God knows it. And these secret things that belong to the Lord, our little finite minds can't comprehend. He's just profusely rejoicing over you in His precious thoughts. I love that. I know the Hebrew in 139 of Psalms, and I know Greek is the New Testament, and I know you can't just rip a word here and rip a word there and make them mean the same thing, but I do want to make a connection. When Peter says, to you who believe, I love this, Jesus is precious. Or when the psalmist, to use the Hebrew, would say in another psalm, your loving kindness, O Lord, how precious is your loving kindness to me? Well, number three, not only can we be vulnerable because God made me, ordained me, and loves me, but number three, vulnerability with God not only begins with His character and deepens with what we just considered, but real vulnerability with God embraces God's character and God's honor as the ground for all true prayer. And here I mean including righteous indignation. It's a challenging portion of this psalm, isn't it? Verses 19-22. to God's character and honor is the ground for our prayer. We crash into psalms like this and we often find ourselves confused. The tenor and the tone of all the verses around it seem to be such a stark contrast from the meek and mild Jesus that we've heard about all our lives. Instead of compassion and love, we find ourselves here in these verses, 19 to 22, not having to search far to find vengeance and hatred. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God, verse 19. Verse 21 Do I not hate those who hate you? Loathe those who rise up against you. 22 I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. How in the world? Does that find a place in my heart if I'm a follower of Jesus who told me to love my enemies and bless those who persecute me? To be perfectly honest with you, I didn't know what to do with passages like this so many times over the years that I've been walking with Jesus. 
There's so much in this psalm that is feel good, except this part. And so to try to reconcile the matter, love your enemies, pray for those that persecute you, bless those that persecute you, to try to reconcile the matter, I just mystified it all. I took it personal and mystical. And I didn't skip these parts. That would have maybe been a little worse than what I did. I just over-spiritualized them. And I turned them against my biggest two enemies, the devil and myself. And I prayed imprecatory psalms against my old man. Kill that man. Put him to death. I hate him. Slay that wicked man. Everything in me that is not in compliance with the Lordship of Jesus, just slice it off. I think it's a fine way to pray. I don't think that's a totally wrong way to use the imprecatory psalms. I definitely would still pray them today against my enemy, the devil. But it becomes grippingly clear as we read this text that the psalmist is writing against other people. And so I couldn't escape the problem until I kept reading the New Testament. And I found out that there's imprecatories all over the New Testament. I just preached one three weeks ago here. Let everyone who does not love the Lord Jesus be accursed. That's an imprecatory. We're commanded in the New Testament, no doubt, be angry and do not sin, but we also get statements like this. May your silver perish with you. That's an imprecatory. There's lots of these in the Psalms. Imprecatory means imprecation, praying against God's wrath and vengeance on our enemies. And I counted on Friday before I lost count 104 verses in the book of Psalms that are explicitly imprecation against other people. I don't know what you think about today's sermon, and though the Gospel has threaded in there a little bit, I would say that if I stopped right now, what I have said might have been in accordance with verses 1-18, to and said something that they say, but I would say that so far, it's been a pretty pathetic sermon if we're measuring it in accord with faithful preaching. This is what I mean. I've only relayed the text to you. But I believe that the Bible demands, and Jesus is the one who most clearly taught us, that the entirety of the Scriptures are not about me. They're about the person and work of Jesus. So I believe wholeheartedly what Graham Goldsworthy so wonderfully stated that the Bible is one book with one author with one main message about one person, the Lord Jesus. And he said every passage of Scripture bears a discernible relationship to Jesus, which means you should be able to see from that text its connection to Christ. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to play fast and loose with Scripture, make everything kind of a Spurgeon ethic, just a beeline to the cross when we don't know what it means. It's probably a safe thing to do. But I'm not saying play fast and loose. I do mean what Jesus meant. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms are about me. I believe that the Psalms are first and foremost the prayers of Jesus, the true Son, the faithful King, the God-glorifying worshiper. The most common mistake that I've made in reading the Old Testament in my walk with Jesus and the most common mistake I hear others commit in applying the Bible to ourselves is to take the original context and immediately draw a straight line to me. However, I believe that the text first applies to Jesus then and only then to me. Who wrote this psalm? The superscript tells us it is for the choir director, but it's a psalm of David. 
He holds a unique place in Israel's history. He's a type of the coming Messianic King. He's the anointed King, the worship leader of the people of God. In that way, He's a type of Christ. T-Y-P-E of Christ. Who is the great anti-type. Jesus is the true King and the faithful Son. And according to Hebrews 2.12, He's the true worship leader of the New Testament church. So many times, and I have a list of references here, the Lord Jesus quoted the Psalms not as the words of David, but as His own words. Lord willing, a week from now, I'll be teaching another class at a school I teach every fall for one week on New Testament verses that quote the Old Testament explicitly telling us that those Old Testament verses are about Jesus. I'll be doing it from 8 to 5 a week from now. Please pray for me. In Matthew 22, Jesus grabs Psalm 110, which David wrote, and it's about the Davidic kingdom, and says, it's not about David, it's about me. In Hebrews 5 and Hebrews 10, the New Testament apostles grab the Psalms and say, David wrote them, but they're about Jesus. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and says, David spoke of him and quotes Psalm 16. So James Adams in his absolutely masterful book on the imprecatory Psalms titled War Psalms of the Prince of Peace wrote this, seeing Psalms as the prayers of the Lord Jesus Christ will deepen your understanding of His heart, His suffering, and His victory on your behalf. Joining Christ, the head of the church, in praying the Psalms, we make our prayers known to God in the name of Jesus. Adams goes on, we who have the New Testament can never look back at the Old Testament as if the New did not exist. The eye of the Psalms is Jesus Christ. The we of the Psalms includes us as we are in the Lord Jesus Christ who prays with His people to the loving Father. I totally, totally think that that's spot on. Adams goes on. The enemies are not our own individually but those of the Lord's Christ and of His church. So it is not enough for you to know the temporal context of each psalm and explain its historical setting. That's what I've tried to do in small part. That would be to understand the psalm in merely a Jewish way. They are the psalms of Christ, the prophet, priest, and king. They record His march in victory against the kingdom of darkness. So John Piper, preaching on this psalm, said, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Piper says, Paul read the imprecatory Psalms as the words of Christ, spoken prophetically by David, the type of Christ. We can see this from Paul's own quotation of other Psalms, like Psalm 69.9, which in Romans 15.3, Paul says, are the words of Jesus. That's one of the most scathing imprecatory Psalms, by the way. Piper concludes this, prefiguring the coming King and Messiah is what we're finding in these passages. Ray Ortland preaching on this same passage in a series titled, My Favorite Psalms, said, David is here speaking as one foreshadowing Christ our Savior. Walt Kaiser, one of the most eminent Old Testament scholars of our generation, said the Psalms are ultimately prayers of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He alone is worthy to pray the ideal vision of a king suffering for righteousness. We can pray these prayers along with Jesus as our representative head, but they are His prayers. I conclude with one more citation. As Christ, James Adams writes, is the author of the Psalms, so too He is the final fulfillment of the covenant on which they are based. God will answer the psalmist's prayers completely in Jesus Christ on the final day of judgment. We must lift up Christ and show the glorious truth that He is central 
in the Psalms, which is exactly what Jesus taught us the day He rose from the dead in Luke 24. He is central in the Psalms. They are about Him. You see, these are not prayers of personal vendetta. It's not petty vindictiveness. Somebody treated me bad, so now I'm going to pray judgment on their head. That's not what's happening. David the king is asking that God would rid the world of the enemies of the people of God. Christ the king is praying perfectly with righteous indignation that all God's enemies will one day be rid of the earth and do no more detriment to His people and Christ will one day fulfill that prayer so that when we pray, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, we are praying imprecatory psalms because as the catechism just so happened to teach us today, the judge is going to rid the world of the, of the wicked. When it says in this passage, verse 22, He hates them with the utmost hatred. I don't know if that reminds you of the meek and mild Jesus, but according to God the Father in Hebrews 1.9, Jesus is the one who hates lawlessness, which happens to be a quotation of Psalm 45.7 applied to Jesus. It's not David, it's Jesus. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, the murderers, verse 19, men of bloodshed. The people who blaspheme God and take His name in vain, verse 20. The people, verse 21, who think they're, own, they're their own God and commit treason against the true God. They rise up against Him, verse 21. Verse 22, those who are God's enemies. Brother Hunter helped me to see this week that the next two psalms are also prayers of protection from the wicked. Psalm 140 and 141. And a request for God to judge evil men. If you read those as the prayers of Jesus, I think you'll see them spot on. You know, when Jesus comes back, what He's going to do? Oh, He's going to be marveled at by all who believe. There's so many glorious things the New Testament says. But it also says this, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, He's going to deal out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The imprecation will one day be fulfilled and the will of God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So vulnerability with God embraces God's character and God's honor as the ground for all our prayers and we come to God through Jesus. There's no other mediator between God and men. And I believe the Psalms teach us that perfectly. Finally, verse 23 and 24. Oh, how sweet. I just have a small portion here for such a wonderful, wonderful well of help. Look at 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Our fourth and final point is vulnerability with God invites God's all-seeing gaze. So you could see the text this way. God's omniscience. God's omnipresence. God's intimacy with us. And inviting God's all-searching gaze. The psalmist has already acknowledged that omniscience of God, that omnipresence of God. As the kingly representative of the people of God, he's prayed down anathemas on the heads of God's enemies. And he knows that God sees and hears every threat they breathe against him and every time they take his name in vain. And now, he brings his own little life voluntarily and very vulnerably into the crosshairs. And he's doing Romans 12, 1 and 2. He's offering His whole life, His whole body as a living sacrifice. And He's saying, search Me, God. 
Examine me beneath the light of your holiness. There are actually five specific requests in these two verses. Search me. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. This is what a person who wants to make it to glory, the everlasting way, prays like. This is a desperate thrust of a soul into the arms of an almighty God saying, I don't want to have good theology. I don't want to have only tight doctrinal statements. I don't want to have true categories. I don't even want to be able to just read the words on the page about your omniscience and your omnipresence and your divine retribution upon the evildoers. I don't want to know about you, God. I want to know you. I want my whole life to be lived in compliance with your Lordship. And dear friends, if you today would say, I'm hearing you. I think this might be penetrating my heart a little bit. I think God might be dealing with me a little bit. If you would say something like this, I don't have an intimate walk with Jesus today, and I know it, and God knows it. I commend verses 23 and 24 to you for daily prayer. I commend these to you and let the sharp edge of the knife of God's Word just fillet your heart wide open in these two verses and just ask Him five things. God, would You search me? God, would You know me? God, would You try my thoughts? Would You see if there's anything hurtful in me? Would You lead me toward eternal life? That's where I want to end. I have one application. It's one letter long. One letter. It shows up in verse 1, verse 4, verse 21, verse 17, verse 19. Oh. That's the application. Oh, Lord. Verse 1, verse 4, verse 21. Oh, God. Verse 17, verse 19. If you don't have a gaping jaw when you engage with God, that comes out in wonder before Him. Oh Lord, oh Lord, oh God. Even if you have some true thoughts and some good theology, but you're missing the whole point of the love relationship with Jesus, ask Him to restore this Oh, Do you see what the psalmist is doing now in this chapter? Yes, he's telling us truth about God's character, but he's praising His name. He's caught up in worshiping wonder. Oh Lord, You have searched me. Oh, Lord, where can I go from Your presence? Oh, God, for Your righteousness' sake, judge Your enemies. Search me, oh, God. Jesus, who perfectly prayed this prayer and will one day eradicate the world of all of God's enemies, also bled and died and rose again to give You eternal life. To lead You down the last few words of this whole psalm lead you down the everlasting way. So won't you turn fresh now to Jesus? I'm talking about raw, vulnerable, no restraint, all to Jesus. Who has actually been here with you the entire time you've been listening to me try to tell you about Him? And when you walk out of the door, is going to be with you every single step the rest of your life. Why not just vulnerably throw yourself on His mercy? Let's pray together. Oh Father, so much depth and wonder in such a rich psalm. Thank You for giving this deposit to us to share with us 
the truth about your character. And oh, how we pray that as we look into your word, we would see and hear the voice of your son. And we would see in him the satisfaction of our souls. Who by his own life, death, resurrection, has done all you require for our salvation, reconciliation with you, and in himself is the supply that we need to live the life that pleases you. So by your spirit, will you fill us for Christ's sake to live the life of open, transparent joy before you all of our days. Cause us to be vulnerable with you and then we'll be able to say with Paul in the book of Romans, if God be for us, who could be against us? Oh God, show us your precious thoughts toward us. Capture us again with the reality of what you think about your children and cause us to emerge from that sweet communion with you to live a life of glad embrace of your presence with us always. Don't let us try to hide in the darkness. Let us love that you are all light, all consuming. Oh Lord, cause us to be in a Christ way vulnerable before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.